History lecture number 54. Likewise, we are, uh, Eli, when you, after, afterwards, when you come, uh, at, at the end of class, I have a real quick question for you. Come over and remember. The, um, the Gemara Sochim tells the story. We're in the middle discussing this intriguing figure, Agrippus I, who was, uh, it's hard to try to convey it accurately. It's not like he's the greatest hero. We'll see he's plenty Hellenized and his penchant for the good life will ultimately do him in. But he is, he's sort of like this, um, my image, my metaphor for him is this like eager puppy dog. He loves everybody, he's so generous, got that generous heart, even Caligula loved him. And, and Fazal definitely do and they appreciated his good efforts and that's why we just saw at the very end of yesterday the Hanufa, I remember the, the key idea, the, the flattery. Because your heart went out to the guy, he was really trying to do his best, and uh, okay, you know, he wasn't really a king. Now, uh, the Gemara Pesachim tells us that he decides one Pesach to take a census to count the people. You remember what happened when David counted the people, it did not end well, but this was not done with any uh, particular gaiva, with any particular pride or arrogance um, in his mind, and he, uh, he does it by finding, he, um, he counts them by the Korban Pesach, and he finds 600,000 pairs of clios, of, uh, as, a way, as a way of measuring uh, of, of these um, nuts. And um, this is not including women and children, so that there's barely enough room in the area of the mikdash for people to stand. And it's this iconic image of the Pesa, of, of the end of the Second Temple period with all the complexities of the time that we're talking about and the various uh, decline that the Jewish people is experiencing spiritually and physically and militarily. But uh, the from Jews are still very from, and they crowd the base of Mikdash, and it's parallel to Yitzhak Mitzrayim in numbers. By the same, at the same time, there were also exactly 600,000 men, not counting women and children, and, and as such, you have, a, you have a mass of people to the point that the nickname that the Gemara gives it is Pesach Mu'ubim, uh, the broadest kind of Pesach. And we, in anticipating the rebuilding the base of Mikdash, this is one of the, this is one of the images that sticks in our minds, the fact that Jews cla- uh, clinging to the Kedusha and, 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 and uh, gathering in such large numbers. We know that there was... Uh, they, they gathered in massive numbers, and yet there was room for any for everybody. One of the miracles was that, despite the immense, the, the immense crowding, uh, when it came down, when it came time to bow down in the base of Mikdash area, so there suddenly was miraculously room for everybody. Jake, what were you going to say? Six hundred thousand is not many. No, that's just the men of fighting age, not counting their children that they brought with them and the women and such. So you're talking the millions. All right. Okay. Um, in the in modern days, to my knowledge, at least the picture that I've seen that has the largest concentration of people in that same space on what we call the Temple Mount today. In this case, there were Arabs there because uh, it was in 1929. Uh, there's a picture. If anybody's interested, I'll send it to. A, I have it on my computer. Um, of some, I think somewhere upward of 250,000 um, people on the Temple Mount davening, and it's quite packed. Wait, Jews or Muslims? No, Muslims. Ah, okay. But just to give you a, a reference point, 250,000 people uh, on the Temple Mount today, so now we're talking 600,000 people. Uh, that's, that's quite a crowd. So these are, the, these are the interesting, colorful days of Agrippus I. Uh, and we know, as I mentioned, with all of his goodness, he did follow some of his grandfather Herod's 
Hel uh, pagan and Hellenized ways. He built theaters and bathhouses. That was the way of the world. That was what he grew up on. Remember, he grew up in Rome, so it was all very comfortable and familiar to him. I mean, he's quite a figure for our time, specifically this time of year, how hard it is when you're immersed in Greek society to resist the trappings of Greek society that are simultaneously very comfortable and appealing, and also you're so used to them, it's hard to imagine life without them. Now, isn't that, for some of you at least, something of a struggle when you think about what you grew up with and some of the stuff that is more obviously a problem from a Torah perspective, but it's so nice to have that stuff. Whatever it is, you'll fill in your own blanks. Uh, I won't elaborate, but that's kind of as we find Agrippus. And Isn't it a bit like when the Jews left Egypt and they went to the Golden Cup? I don't they, think so. I, I, I don't, I, I, you're saying it's, it's analogous to the Kate Egel and they kept to the pagan ways that they were used to in Egypt, but I'll tell you the difference, maybe somewhat. I, maybe there's a little bit of element, but the big difference I see is that by the Golden Calf, the, um, that was... That, like all the sins in the desert, was triggered by the Erevrav, by the mixed multitude, who were not Jewish. And they were the ones who were the subversive force. They're the ones who were, who were triggering it. And it's true, the Jews should have resisted more. And maybe the fact that they didn't resist enough is due to what you're saying, is they were too acculturated and felt very comfortable and familiar to them to have the golden calf. But I think this is a much lower time in history. And at this point, the people, Agrippus is not alone. There are a lot of Jews who are, with the best of intentions, are inclining towards Hellenized ways. Um, a lot of them not. I mean, that's why we have such a split at the end of this, at the end of the Second Temple period. Well, um, he's also he wants to win favor with everybody. We've seen this with the uh, Hasmonean rulers before. You remember Yohanan Hyrcanus, his. Uh, if indeed his grandmother was Miriam, so it was his ancestor, Yohanan Hyrcanus, tries to cross the aisle and tries to uh, bring in everybody, Stukim, Shomronim, everybody. Well, he wanted to win everybody's favor, but the local Greeks, and the non-Jewish uh, Hellenized people, and the Shomronim particularly loathed the man. There was anybody who was so sympathetic to the rabbis, to Chazal, come make room for Elan. Anybody who was so sympathetic to the rabbis couldn't be up to anything good, so they loathed him. And uh, there was a particular um, event that took place up in Caesarea. You remember Caesarea, Herod's, one of his master stroke accomplishments, the world's first artificial port cities, one of the three um, great port cities of the Roman world together with Pioris and Alexandria, uh, was, was Caesarea, Caesarea, uh, and um, he has a massive festival celebration <laughs> dedicated to Claudius, to, to, to Caesar Claudius, who's the Caesar in Rome, and there's, the, there's this, there's this uh, festival going on, and on the second day of the festival, he's in the theater, and in the theater, when in Rome, it was the Romans, they're definitely seeing the spectacle uh, of the Roman and what did they do in the theater? They saw comedy, they saw, they saw drama it was a way that the Roman culture inculcated their values in some places in Rome they paid you to go to the theater because it was worth it to indoctrinate everybody into Roman lifestyle and so you, you saw these displays and he was in the theater doing the Roman thing and suddenly in the middle of the show he doubles over in having, having what are obviously excruciating stomach pains, and he falls ill, and five days later, he dies. Poisoned to death at the age of 54, having served seven years as king. So he's an impactful personality, but he's not somebody that doesn't last long. And 
Now he leaves the scene, and it's he wasn't the king, you remember. There were a few different figures, sort of on the horizon. There's the Herodian, there's the Herodian family figureheads. There's the Nitzivim, who are the governors that the Romans is assigned to make sure that there's order because they don't really trust these Jews. This is Agrippus the first, who just dies, and his son Agrippus the second is only seventeen years old, and he's off in Rome, and he's determined. It's determined that he's too young to take over from Agrippus. So that th- it's at this point that, in terms of administ- administratively, the Romans have their nitzivim, who in the past have been sort of in charge, and sort of make sort of the keepers of the order, mitam uh, from the from the uh, authority of the Roman Empire. Now the nitzivim take over. And that means not good for the Jews. There's increasing persecution. The Jews were much happier when you had a figure of the stature of Agrippus I. Now there's more persecution. Um, later, Agrippus I, Agrippus II, the son, will be appointed. And at first, he seems to be like his father, so it seems to bode well. Uh, that's the initial impression he leaves. And uh, he'll become Hellenized. And he'll become sometimes the biggest villains in history are originally are Jewish, and then they go the way of the non-Jews, and then they become our worst enemies. We'll see many examples of that in the Middle Ages, and then the, the, the more modern times. Uh, we have many, many, many such examples, and it's almost like they have to make a point to show their true loyalty to the non-Jewish world that they're a part of, to, to particularly oppress the Jews. So I'm not a part of that. Uh, so Agrippus II eventually, we'll see, is going to go into Hellenized ways. He's an interesting figure. He never gets married. Uh, he will be the political powerhead in Judea for the next 21 years, uh, lasting all the way until the Chorban, until the, until the destruction of the Second Temple. I, I mentioned the family. I mentioned that two of the siblings don't play a major role, but Agrippus does play a role, and he has two sisters. I make a comment about them. One of them is named Drusilla, Mas Agrippus. She marries the Roman consul. That was what they did. They married into families of power. Uh, and his other sister, Berenike, we're going to hear a certain amount about, she is off in Rome. She goes from one marriage to the next. Uh, not exactly the most modest of individuals. Uh, eventually, she'll come back to Judea, uh, having failed in all of her marriages, and she'll uh, take up residence next to her brother. And she'll play a role, too. She'll become something of a balas chuva uh, later on. Now, it's, these are very interesting, fraught times. Uh, we've, we're, as Ilan, you pointed this out yesterday, you got to kind of, as best we can, because I, 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 this is a time period that it's worth slowing down and taking stock of the many dynamics, the many different strands of activity in the, in the Jewish world, in the non-Jewish world, and the Christian world as well, because they all come to play, and they all have a major impact on the future. So I am slowing down somewhat, and we're, we are taking time to dwell on some of the, the important details. Um, one of the things we haven't talked about at all is one of the things that marks this period is that, um, as one of my tour guide students actually put it, who I hopefully see, and I think I just got a phone call from Sunday, I've been gathering uh, in a few minutes after the class. Anyway, um, one of them put it this way, the Roman Empire conquered Judea, but the Jews' Tyra conquered the Roman Empire. And it's an, it's an exaggeration, it's not accurate, but what, what is true about it is, that, is the fact that the um, Judaism, Torah, had this mystique. And as much as we see the early elements of anti-Semitism breaking out, and I gave you a few examples of that, um, this is a time 
counterintuitively, you shouldn't predict this at all, but it's one of the most, uh, it's one of the largest infusions of con converts in all of history. People are, it's not quite like the days of Dovin and Shlomo where they remember they were clamoring and initially they didn't accept any converts and then eventually converts managed to get in. But it's one of the records in our history for most converts. And it's been interesting. It's, uh, as one source claims, and I don't think they know this, demographics, especially in, in ancient history, are hard to play. But there is a source that does the math and crunches the figures and says that he feels that about a quarter million Romans convert to Judaism during this period. That's a lot of people. And let's say the guy's especially off. Especially the ancient world. Especially the ancient world. That's a lot of people. And it's particularly strange given the fact that, A, Romans are Esav. And Esav, Sones, Yaakov, notoriously and historically, they hated the Jews. The Jews were increasingly persecuted and despised, making them not exactly the most desirable lifestyle. Why would you ever want to be a part of the Jews? You know that's one of the lines that we say in the right down the Shulchan Aruch, we say to prospective converts, don't you realize, as they're, anybody, anybody know this about, about conversion? It's a great topic to learn. You just need to come on. As they're taking their lap, right before they're about to immerse in the mikvah, and it was, it's the point of no return, after which point they become Jewish, the basting stands there. I was actually, I officiated at such, at such a, I know, very dramatic, uh, such, such, such a conversion process. Uh, I was one of the three people on the basting. Really interesting thing. Anyway, the, uh, uh, as you're standing there, they say, don't you realize that the Jewish people is, among, is oppressed and if you join us, you're going to join our ranks of being some of the hated, among, among the most hated, despised people in the world. And if they say, Oh, was I saying Judaism? I meant, I'm so sorry, I meant Hindu. Uh, no, then they're not a convert, and then they're not a candidate anymore. But, um, but if they say, yes, I know that, and I love Hashem, and I love his Torah, and I want to do it anyway, by all means, accept them. Right? So that's the situation right now. They're coming in least likely, least propitious times to be Jewish, and as it were, they're knocking down the door. And how do we, how we understand this? Mark, you want to say something before? Well, it's in the Excellent. So we saw at various junctures, anybody remember, there was, let's say, the most famous example of a time in history, well, there are a couple examples, where, this, where the conversion was patently not sincere? Kutin is one of the examples, for sure. Gere Arayos, the converts because of lions. There's another time that's also famous? Um, Erevrab is, is, is another question, and I agree, I, I accept it as a possible answer, but I think there's something else. There's something you all know, or you should know, we talked about it here too. Purim. Excellent. During the times of Purim, and, and Chazal actually say that those were not legitimate converts, but they, they converted out of fear, like in the line, like in the case of the lions. <coughs> another one that you said. There was even another one, another time of conversion that I don't think of. It's possible. What, what else did you think? The Kutim. That's the Kutim. That's, ah, that's yeah, who he meant. Yeah. That's right. Okay. So um, it's true that Edom, you remember when we last checked in with Edom historically, and it's very related to the end of last week's Parsha where they count the chieftains of Esau's descendants, they compare it and matches up perfectly with Yaakov's, and I mentioned this in history, Yaakov had dominance in the world as long as they had righteous kings in Judea, in Yehuda, and that lasted all the way until Yehoshaphat, the eighth king of the Jews. His son went sour, Yehoram, who married Asalia, if you remember the whole story, and from, Asal, from Yehoram, we start to hear about Esau's kings, because then they're taking ascendancies, ascendancy in the world. Ula'om, Mila'om, Ye'ematz, Hashem tells Rivka, when one is up, 
the other one's down. And the other one's up, the other one's down. That's the symbiotic relationship that exists between Yaakov and Esav. And Esav now has dominance in the world, so it's still totally counterintuitive. Why in the world would they want to join the destiny of Yaakov? But they do. Uh, in the Gemara Mitzachim, it says, Israel was dispersed among the nations of the world with the, in order to attract converts. Um, I would explain it like this. What is the draw? The Roman civilization, as we've seen, gave humanity a whole new level of, of enjoyment in this world. They elevated the physical experience, aesthetic experience, the comforts, the architecture, everything about life. The indoor plumbing meant life was so much more pleasant. The elevated hygienic practices, the food, the decadence, everything about it made this world so much more attractive that when you have everything in this world, you become more painfully aware of how empty it all is. When it's all about this world, it shines a flashlight on spiritual matters and the pagan culture of the Roman world had very little going for it in the pagan world. Uh, I do this when I guide Beit Shammas inside comes out. We go to an eight, we point to a destroyed pagan point of worship and I describe, you can see it pretty clearly there, how the edifice, the outside was very ornamental and beautiful, but actually inside where the statues actually stood were simple and plain and uninteresting. Meaning it's all for show, but there's not much in it. Aimbo mamish, as in this week's parsha, the pit is empty, there's no water in it, right? So that's that's the nature of water being Torah. The pit is empty in pagan practice. Aimbo mind, there's no there's no spirituality. That was the Roman that was the Romans through and through. It was all externals, all superficials, and not much going on deep down. And Torah is the opposite. We downplay the externals. I mean, not entirely. The base Knesset, for example, has to be the tallest building in town. And it should be, if you have any money to invest, it should be the nicest building for sure. So it's not like we go to the opposite extreme. But we don't emphasize that. Because the emphasis is what's on the inside. We, we, if you ever notice this, hold the paper just a second. If, if you ever notice this, there's very little authentic, what they call Judaica in the world. They have to make up a lot of Judaica because we're not a very thingy-oriented religion. It's not about stuff. It's not about things. You know, the Jewish star we talked about doesn't seem to have a, a strong Jewish presence, or Moshe has a tshuva on it, but really it doesn't, it doesn't seem to be associated with Judaism until the Middle Ages. And the most things in the menorah is, but the menorah is part of the temple, right? It wasn't meant to be sold as a trinket in a gift shop. Dreidel? Dreidel also, why dreidels? What was the function of the dreidel? This time of year, it's why I to talk. When they prohibited Jews from learning Torah, they used it as a disguise. They should, they pretended to be playing some silly game, and they played with the dreidel in order to cover up the fact that they were actually still learning Torah. So the dreidel was, in a sense, was a was a symbol of you know defiance of overcoming the non-Jewish decrees in order to be Jewish and learn Torah. But the point there is my point, which is that it's really ultimately about the substance. It's about the spirituality, not about this these superficials. And, and, and I think the Romans understood that. I'm, I'm giving you a basic explanation. That's what drew that so many people. If life is so empty, here are the Jews coming talking about meaning, beauty in the world, inner beauty, Kedusha, the whole notion of Kedusha, which I think on, on a basic, raw, primal human level, people know, we're all made with Selim and Lakim, we all have God's spark in us. They know intuitively, non-Jews as well, that there's got to be something more in life. And Torah talks about that more in great depth. Can we do that about the Greeks? Do you 
Greek. What do you mean? You mean like the Greek culture offered more meaning because they had philosophy? Philosophy, uh, math. You could maybe a little bit more, but at the end it was pretty, it was not very satisfying. When the ultimate gods and goddesses, we, we spent some time, I don't know if you were there for that class, we talked about the Greek system where the gods and goddesses were more evil than human beings and gave beautiful license for human beings to misbehave because, you know, if the gods and goddesses are doing it, then we can't be faulted. And people recognize the emptiness and the meaninglessness of that kind of existence as well. The Jewish world said, no, no, there's good, better, and best, and there's an ethical structure here, and uh, we, we're striving for better. Now, if we think about, briefly, in history, um, famous gayrim, famous converts, who comes to mind, let's say, way back when? Who are our original famous, famous oh, no. gayrim? No, no, I'm talking about go back in time. Who original Gary? Uh, the oh, notion of Gayrus, you realize, Israel. is only relevant when the Jews become a nation. Israel. Prior to Mamad Har Sinai, to the to Mount Sinai, it's not relevant to talk about the Jews as a nation as as converts because there's no nation to convert to. Even though we say that Avram was Megayer the men and Sarah was Megayeris the women, that's only uh, symbolic. It's not technically accurate. Israel. Yisro is, is, is Yisro, and then there's another one. These two are actually conferred, considered what Chazal called them Roshe Gerim, the heads, the first converts. Who's the, who's the other one? Rus. Uh, before Rus. Rus will come a little bit later, but who's before her? Moshe and we definitely talked about her. Tsipora, no, that's Yisro's daughter, and she's not identified per se as a, as a Gioras, even no, though Likoras she must have been. Oh, um, wait, 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 before we... Oh, uh, Joshua's... Uh, but you're on the right track if you think of Moshe's wife. Yeah, wife. Whose oh, name is? Don't say her name twice. Rachav. Rachav, exactly. So um, Yisra and Rachav are identified as the heads of the Gerim. Wait, what, about um, the, what about the woman who uh, saved them? That's Rachav. Basya. Basya Basparo? No, it's Saddam. Rachav. That's the same oh, woman. Okay. That's Rachav. Right. Very good. Very good, Jake. Uh, yeah. Um, we remember the Medrash tells us that Zvulun, you remember Zvulun was the, was the, was the uh, seafarer? He went, he went into business abroad. So Zvulun went, and part of the reason he went traveling so widely during his business travels, he, while he was traveling, he learned Tyra. And people, just he was learning by himself, and as he was learning, people were drawn to him. And they started asking questions, why did you do this, and what's this mitzvah about? And he attracted many converts. The Medrash tells us, Rus, of course, you know, the whole discussion of gay Rus can't go on without, the, without Rus, uh, the, the great-grandmother of David Melech. Um, we know that Sisra, remember when Devorah fought Sisra, that Bnei Banav, his descendants, will eventually convert and teach children uh, Torah in Yerushalayim. You remember Naaman, who came down with his tzaras to Elisha, and he's cured, and he gives the tzaras to Elisha's assistant, whose name is Gehazi. So Naaman became a convert. <coughs> um, you remember that Sancheriv was killed by his sons, and that the Bnei Banav Shel Sancheriv would become famous converts. We just met them recently in history. They were the, they were the uh, among the last of the Zugos. Shmaya and Avtalion, which were, were descendants of Gerim. You remember the Rav Tabachim, the chief butcher? Remember his name? Nevuzaradan, who murders those tens of thousands of Jews to avenge the boiling blood on the, on the plaza level of the base of Mikdash. He eventually goes and converts. Um, we have Bnei Banav Shel Haman. Haman's descendant to teach Torah in Bnei Brak and many others. Now it's true. There's converts in their converts. Wait, Haman's descendant. Haman was Amalek. 
Indeed, isn't that ironic? Go look at the Gemara and the Mepharshim there. It's the Gemara and Kitim. It's a, it's a good question. How is it conceivable that there's any surviving descendant of Haman, and yet Chazal teaches famously that Bnei Banav Shel Haman taught Torah in Bnei Brak? I just found that out yesterday. I had, I yeah, quite a chiddush, huh? Uh, now, we know that some converts converted Shalolishma, not for the right reasons. For example, I just mentioned Drusilla, the daughter of Agrippus I and the sister of Agrippus II. So she marries this Roman consul named Aziz, uh, who falls in love with her, and his conver- he converts, but it's not sincere. And we know that it's true in the literature about conversion, that conversion, because you fall in love with a Jew, be very wary. And generally the post are against the notion of converting. Yeah, welcome, Adam. Uh, the, the notion that they can, we're talking about, we're, we're in the late Second Temple period, talking about an un, unexpected, unpredictable um, instance of conversion. The Romans are converting to Ju- Judaism in larger numbers, arguably one of the biggest influx of converts in the most unlikely time. Um, some of them are very insincere. But you know, a lot of them are very sincere, and somebody threw out this name. We only have a few of their names, and we've mentioned them here. Um, one of them is actually took his name, it's a nickname that uh, describes his, uh, his, 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 the fact that he's a, a, a son of a Gioris, in Perkiavos, Ben Bagbag. Bag is a variation for Ben Gioris, son of the convert, but also his companion Ben Hehe. This is a look at the, look at the, uh, the end of the fifth chapter, they both, feature, they both figured there. Um, we know that Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Meir's families were, were both, they were both descendants of, Ger, of Gerim, and somebody threw out a very famous Ger from this period. Think about translations. Uncleus. Uncleus was a Ger, was, was, was a convert, and he's a great story, we'll, we'll talk about that, that's coming up, that's coming up soon. Say it again. Uh, that's a Machlokis, which, he was a nephew of a Caesar, and there's one view that it's Hadrian, but very good. Very good. It's probably Hadrian. I agree that makes more sense chronologically, but there's question about that. I want to tell you a very brief story. It's fascinating about a family of converts who has a massive impact on Kalal Yisrael. Uh, it goes back to a certain King Munbaz. King Munbaz. Uh, of the nation called Khadiv, which is sometimes rendered in English Adiaben. Don't ask me how they get Adiaben from Khadiv, but those are the, those are the names. Um, it's today somewhere, it's near Madai, which would be in the vicinity of Iran, maybe south, the, the area of the, uh, not the Crimea, but uh, the former Soviet Union, Uzbekistan maybe, uh, that region. And um, this king, uh, he used to do some really awful personal practices. He's not a commendable person himself, but he has a younger son by the name of Isats. They certainly, if nothing else, they have really great names, don't they? Isats ben Munbaz. Uh, and he, he gives his son, as there was the practice, he said, you son, you're going to go govern this district, a duchy, and you're going to go rule there. So his best go is is. Izatz, excuse me, Izatz goes and he rules there. And what do you know, in the same, uh, I guess, the spirit that we saw of Zvulun traveling around the world, and just through his natural goodness attracting a following, there's a Jew, a merchant, who's there by the name of Hanania, and he's learning Tyra, because that's what Jews do. And he attracts a following. And women who are notoriously more spiritual. Um, one, there's an argument to be made historically that the women were the ones who made, who, this is a couple centuries premature saying this, but sometime around the uh, late, 
well, probably more like, more like the late third, early fourth century of the common era, women were the ones that made Christianity a prominent religion, <clears throat> Without the, which is ironic because Christianity is, was so misogynist, was so anti-women, but they're the ones who embraced it. Women are much more spiritual. That's the Chazal's assumption. I hope to be giving, uh, I, I want to elaborate on that theme on Sunday. I'm going to talk about women and men and, male, and, and the distinct roles. Women have that. They have an innate spirituality um, that men should envy. And so the women are drawn, and then men follow too. And Izatz sees the commotion, and he's drawn too, and he overhears Torah. And Torah speaks to the human neshama. And we're not proselytizing. Our goal is not to convert the world. But sometimes, what are you going to do? Torah is so attractive. It's so appealing in these otherwise, in these materially comfortable times that are spiritually vacant and empty. And Izatz gets, gets excited. And his father, Munbaz, dies. And his mother, a great woman by the name of Helene, the queen mother, uh, arranges for her son to become the next king. That's what they did, dy dynastic rule. And so Isaac comes back, and he's the new king. And he turns to Hanania and he says, you, Rebbe, are going to be my chief advisor. So Hanania accepts the job, and he comes back. And Helene, the mother, hears about this dynamic rabbi, and she starts learning, and she converts. I'm abbreviating I'm the story. It's a, great, it's a greater story, but I'm giving, I'm giving you the highlights. She converts, and she becomes one of the all-time great Jews. Midatekis, the mitzvot, careful, loving of Hashem, loving of every act of, of, of chesed that she can do. Um, Isatz now wants to convert too. He says, you know, sign me up. Uh, and they say, Hanania the Rebbe, and Helene, his mother, said, you can't do it. It's dangerous. They're going to kill you. A Jewish king, it's not going to work. So uh, he waits. He doesn't convert it, at least not immediately. It'll happen later on. He becomes instead what's called the Ger Toshav. Do you know how the ranking, do you know how it works with being a non-Jew? A person can be a Ger. That's called the Ger Tzedek. If you don't take on what's called the Makabal Old Torah, to accept, to accept the yoke of the Torah, the next step that a non-Jew can take is to become a formal Ger Toshav, which means to formally go to a Jewish base team and be mekabel sheva mitzvos bnei noach. They can go and make a declaration. They formally accept as binding the seven Noahide laws. The next step down from that is somebody who doesn't formally accept that, but just does it. He's not as good. They're not called the Gir Toshav, but there's something. And they get, a, they get, you know that there's an important place in Olam Haba for the Hasidic Umos Olam, for the righteous and the non-Jews. Sure. So uh, certainly somebody who keeps, who, who Mimela, who wound up keeping the seven Noahide laws is a good guy, uh, not as good as the Ger Toshav. So Isatz, for the time being, becomes a Ger Toshav. Later he converts. And later, the ancient world is very confusing with names. He takes his father's name. So Isatz becomes Munbaz. Got that? Uh, that's going to be important. Anybody here go through Mishnahs? Maybe not. Didn't you hear the name Munbaz before? It's, it comes, he's in the, he's in the, uh, in the Mishnah. So is Helene. Yeah. So is the mother. And I'm going to tell why. Um, yeah, you have something? Are you going to give away some of my story? You know the story, I know. I, I do, but uh, I have a question. With, uh, is it possible today for a Gentile to go up to the, I mean, we don't have a base team, but I mean, just a group of three men? Absolutely. Something that I don't, uh, Rabbi Lieber argued with me on this. He doesn't see it as necessarily a bad, I don't think it's a bad thing either, but he saw it as maybe as a good thing. I, I think it's strange, what I'm about to say. I haven't said it yet. Uh, what I'm about to say. He thought it was maybe a good thing. I, I think it's just strange because we never find this. Chabad, one finds this dynamic in Chabad, they proactively and together with trying to, Makarov Jews, 
they actually, I don't know of any precedent in, any, in all of history for what they're doing, they proactively seek to create B'nai Noach, or Ger Toshav, among non-Jews. Uh, they had a whole event a few years ago in Bloomfield Statement Stadium outside of Jaffa and in Tel Aviv uh, where they, they had this whole public ceremony of non-Jews formally accepting the Sheva Mitzvah's B'nai Noach and they, they make a big to-do about it. Well, I mean, it makes sense because nobody knows the seven Noah. Right, right. So I, I can hear it. It just strikes me as odd. What are they doing that for? Where do we have any precedence for such a thing? Did the Gdolin talk about doing that? No. And so that's why I'm not so sure. Although Red Lieber, I understand his perspective too. You know, what was wrong with it? It's certainly better for the world that, that they should be keeping these laws. In any case, in any case, um, yeah, no, they could come by all means today. Now, Helene, among, his, among her great accomplishments, she takes a neder nazirus. Women can do that too, and she becomes a, naz, a nazira, uh, meaning she for she foregoes um, any grape product. She doesn't come in contact with a dead body. She grows her hair initially for seven years, and then there's a problem, so it's another seven years, for a total of 21 years. And she eventually makes her way to, in the middle of this actually, she comes to Eretz Yisrael, why do Yerushalayim, what is a Nazir, or a Nazira, why do they have to come to Yerushalayim? Ever, ever learned Nazirus before? Okay. Uh, part of the process formally is you have to culminate the process with bringing Korban Nazir. So they have to come to Yerushalayim to bring their, their, their offering, and she comes to Yerushalayim, and when she arrives, she finds that Am Yisrael is destitute. They're in a terrible, terrible state. They're starving, they're poor. Uh, and so she contacts her son, the king, Munbaz, and they spend, she spends some of her own wealth, he spends some of his wealth, and they import wheat and other goods from Alexandria, the closest wealthy uh, uh, place, and they save the Jews. That's an example of her chesed, yeah. Uh, she has a few famous bits in the Talmud, she comes up. Um, she's not to be confused. There are few. She's not Helen of Troy. That's a that's a Greek uh, in, a figure. Um, she's also not the she's same. Tomorrow. She's called yeah. That's right. it's Helen of Troy. No, I'm just saying. People sometimes when I talk about this, say, oh Helen, right Helen. No, no, not that one. Uh, she's also she's Helene Hamalka, not to be confused with the later Christian icon who we're going to talk about too. She that's the fourth century Helene Hamalka, different person altogether. This is from the late Second Temple period, Helene Hamalka, who has a, a, a legendary, massive sukkah with different compartments, different rooms. Anybody, anybody learn sukkah here? Okay, so she has, she has this massive sukkah that at least part of it's kosher. Um, she has her own room for herself that's higher than 20 amos. And if you know the laws, it's actually related to Hanukkah as well. If you, you can't have your Hanukkah elevated above a certain level, otherwise people can't see it, then there's no presuming Nisa. So a similar dynamic exists. If the sukkah is too tall, it's not, it's not, the, it's not, it's a, it's not considered a proper um, dwelling place, and it's puzzle. But Chazal don't tell her that where she's sitting is not a um sukkah. And they say because her motivation was pure, she wanted to create a separate room for the women so they wouldn't conflict with the men. So that was very nice, that Sneas. And anyway, they, they conclude women are paturas from the sukkah to begin with, so there's no problem with her sitting up there. And that's, where we get the and that's, and that's one of the sources of the halacha. She famously donates um, several wealthy, valuable objects to the base of Mikdash. I mentioned this when we had a tour a few weeks ago of the Machon Mikdash. She donated the golden tablet uh, that had the text that the Sota reads from when the Sota waters are administered, if you remember that, Sugya. So she donated that to the base of Mikdash. There's something called the Golden Nivreshit, which is a kind of a menorah, right at the entrance to the uh, Kodesh, to the Heichal, part of the main temple uh, structure. 
that's uh, it was the Nivreshis that went, oh, the Nivreshis. Can anybody have this picture? One, one of my favorite pictures in the Machon the Mikdash is this huge uh, mural, and they have this um, gorgeous reflection right there at the entrance of the Heichal that looks like some kind of miraculous glow. Uh, can anybody picture this picture? Everybody asks about it. Maybe you didn't notice it. I, I didn't point it out when we were there. Anyway, that's the, the Nivreshis and Chazal tell us, and they, they, they drew it very well over there. Uh, Chazal tell us that that... Um, it told it told the time, and when it was time for Kriyashma, the, the sun radiated from it. So it was a natural uh, mitzvah uh, clock keeper. That's the Marnuma. Um, the elder Munbaz will eventually take over from the. Excuse me. The elder brother. This was the little brother Isach who became Munbaz the king, and then he died, and his older brother takes over as the king, and he takes the name Munbaz, just to keep your life. A little bit hectic and com and confusing. So they're all Munbaz. Father, son, and son are Munbaz. So the elder Munbaz uh, also converts, also becomes a tzaddik. He donates to the base of Mikdash something called the Yados, uh, the golden Yados Kalim. Uh, their descendants also are Jewish. They come to Yushalayim, and they actually become part of the inner circle of Chachamim. Chazal tell us these are righteous people. And I hope to take you on a tour, and you guys should calm down already and stop the war across the street. Uh, the, when, when things get calmer, I like to do a tour of East Jerusalem. And one of the great sites in East Jerusalem is a place that's called Kivrei Malachim, that almost certainly is this family's burial plot. And it's not just a, bur a burial plot, it's a major, um, it's a place with sarcophagi, which was the way they buried back in the day. Uh, it's a stunning rich person's burial uh, site of honor. And you'll be blown away by it if we ever get there, uh, Bezras Hashem. Anyway, arguably, it's the, it's the place Josephus describes, for example, such a place that's just north of the walls of the old city of, of Yerushalayim, Yer Kodesh. Indeed, Kivir Malachim is just north of those walls. Remember, we on our tour a couple weeks ago, I said, and this is the third wall, Bais Chomash Lishis. It's probably the place. Okay. Um, in this time where we have uh, profusion of, of converts and people being drawn to Torah, Irrationally, what are they coming to be persecuted for? But that's the power of Torah. Um, we have these stellar figures of rabbis, Chazal, we call them, Chachamim Zichron Livracha, that's what that term stands for. And Chazal are described, the goodness of the individual rabbis are described in the most sublime terms. I'll give you a few examples. Um, these were role models for the time and for uh, for all time, and maybe they also round out the picture and explain a certain amount of what the appeal of Judaism was. You just didn't have people like this. They didn't come like this in Rome. In Rome, they, they came more in the form of Caligula or Herod or one of these tyrants, one of these brutes. But compare all of the above, compare all of the above with the following. Mark Subas tells us um, um, we have a, we have a, a halachalamaisa, a man of wealth, you know this halacha, a man of wealth loses his fortune. He becomes poor. So um, what is the halacha, according to the Hillel? You provide him with a horse, like he was used to, and um, a slave to run ahead of him. Now he's a poor man. This is the way rich men behave, and he can't afford this. Yeah, well, we have to preserve his, his, his dignity. So uh, assuming that there's enough money and their funds, their funds provide for the really poor people who are starving to death, right? They get first priority. But you give to the rich man the, to the standard he's used to. And once, the Gemara there tells us, the, uh, as the story goes, a slave, the slave that they appointed became unavailable. So what happened? 
Hillel personally himself became the slave and ran before the rich man to preserve his dignity. Uh, another example, also in that Gemara, Marukfa and his wife uh, give a man tzedakah. And they do it anonymously to preserve his dignity so that the man, yeah, it's embarrassing to take a handout. Nobody likes to take a handout. So they do it, embar- uh, they do it anonymously. And then the man is about to discover who they are. They're about to walk into the house and they realize, oh no, our identity is going to be uh, discovered and he'll be embarrassed in front of us. So they, well, they do the logical thing under the circumstances. They um, run and hide in a hot furnace so that the man shouldn't be embarrassed. Okay. Uh, I'll give another couple of illustrations. How literally should we be taking these stories? It is a gutic. A gutita doesn't always literally have to be true, but... It, but I quoted Rav Menachem Mendel of Kutsk. He said, somebody who believes the literal detailed version of, a, of every piece of Agarita is a bit of a fool, but a man who rejects the literal meaning is a kofar, is a heretic. Meaning there's so much deeper, there's so much more than just the, the, the face value of the story, but on the other hand, there's truth to these stories too. And, and one conclusion I think we can draw is that these good people were all that and much more. They were goodness through and through. They, you would just, they radiated. Gemara Brachos tells us about Rav Chana Bar Lai, whose practice it was, he was a wealthy man. He used to hire 60 bakers in his house by day, and then again another 60 bakers in his house by night to always have a rotation and always have fresh bread available for the poor. And, um, and at night, and if this wasn't enough, some people were too embarrassed to go to the soup kitchen, as it were. So he set out bags of grain for anybody who's, who's too personally embarrassed to come and beg. They could take the grain and they could go bake in their own houses on their own. So he allowed, literally, I mean, everything was thought about. In terms of, what, say, say it again, Jay? He could just give them the bread. No, if they come and take the bread, they're embarrassed. Or you said leave it out there, but then it'll go bad, and so on, the grain, I don't know. Then they bring it home, and where'd the bread come from? At least this way they can keep up an appearance as if they they earned the money and had the grain that they could make themselves. Yeah, that's where we're supposed to be as well. Yeah, if you're in need, I wouldn't call it a mitzvah, but yeah, there's an imperative. You should accept the money. You should accept the money, and it's important to do so when you're going to stand on a uh, grandstand, and, and it, it, sometimes it's a guy even not to accept. It's pride, Yeah, sometimes it can be pride. Yeah, you should. Uh, you know, on the other hand, Rabbi Kiva teaches this, Asei Shabbos Chachol Labrios. We can take preventative measures not to become poor, and one of them, even though we're supposed to reserve and we spend money on mitzvahs and we have nice, we have a nice spread on Shabbos and Yantiv, but if by doing so, and the Tosfos talks about this, it's not so clear how far you have to go to, to have a nice uh, spread on Shabbos and Yantiv, but you're not supposed to, go, to put yourself in debt if you can't pay back those debts. So, um, so if, if maybe if you, if you had a more simple lifestyle, you wouldn't even become poor. So that's certainly better than becoming poor and then having to force yourself to accept a handout. Um, this is the time period we've met him briefly, but let's let's meet uh, one of the great figures of history. His name is Shmuel Hakatan. Remember, little little Shmuel. He's one of the last great rabbis without an official title because he didn't need one. Shmuel Hakatan. Katan itself um, gave it away. The Gemara says that um, in one episode, Rabbi Gamliel asks, invites seven men to come him, as was the procedure, to do what's called Ibur Hashana. What's Ibur Hashana? Um, to make the a leap year. 
literally make the year pregnant, a leap year. Um, now it's built into our calendar system, but once upon a time, one of the jobs that befell the Sanhedrin was determining when we got an extra Adar. Last year, you remember, there was an Adar Shani. So this, this is a job that, that, that they did in the Sanhedrin. And he invites the requisite number, seven men, to come and do the Ibur Shana. And eight men show up. And that's, what are the, I, I, how do you say it nowadays? I'm trying to get the jargon down. I, my, I'm, I'm, I'm officially out of, Akiva, you were, you were, we, were, we were talking about this earlier today, right? I, I'm officially out of the modern culture. I think oh, you yeah. say um, eight men show up when seven men were invited. Awkward. Yeah. Is that the right word? That's right. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, so, um, so eight men come, and so Rabban Gamliel says, whoever came without permission, leave, which is really embarrassing. So Shmuel Akatan gets up and he starts walking out. And it's so obvious to everybody there that he wasn't the eighth guy who wasn't invited. So every, if anything, he'd be the leader, right? But he left to preserve the guy's uh, dignity. And Rabbi Gamaliel makes him stay, and they simply add the eighth man. Um, in another episode, it's going to sound familiar, but it's a separate episode. There ga- uh, there's a gathering of Chachamim in Jericho, in Yericho. And a baskel comes down, remember one of these heavenly voices, and says, Yesh b'neichem shnaim ru'uyim l'ruach ha-kodesh. There are among all of you great rabbis sitting here two who are so worthy, you're worthy to have Ruach HaKodesh, uh, which is not yet prophecy, but it's one thing, it's, it's short of prophecy, something this generation is still privy to. And then the Basel concludes, the Hillel Hazokin Echad Mehem. Hillel the elder is one of those two. And the Basel doesn't identify the second one, so all the Chachamim present, I'll go like this, because they know it's Shmuel HaKatan. That's how obvious his greatness was. He didn't need any title rabbi. Didn't the same happen to uh, Shammai? No, the same happened to Hillel earlier. I told the story uh, a few days ago. Oh. Same happened to Hillel, okay. yeah. Um, why would It's a good question. Go look it up. It's the Gemara and Sanhedrin that I learned on, on, on Yudala from the base. Um, Shmuel Akatan authored a mission in Pirkei Avos. Uh, he says, Binfol oivecha al tismach. When, you're, when your enemy falls, don't rejoice. Now, one of the sworn enemies of the Jews was this new persecuted sect called the Christians. Uh, they, had not, they had not become prominent yet. Um, they were definitely an enemy of the Jews. They, they certainly worked to uh, subvert the, the religion from the inside. And Shmuel, for his part, had no personal malice. He didn't have any hard feelings for them, um, but they had to be opposed. And in, towards doing this, you, you, don't, you, don't, you, don't, you don't rejoice when your enemy falls. Uh, he composes a special bracha. This is very famous. Does anybody know which bracha he composed? Shmuel Akatan? I'll give you a very good. Who just said it? Good. Aaron, you said it? You, you, you uh, beat me to giving you a hint. I was, my hint... Yeah, we just said it in, in, in Mincha. Right? The, remember, Anshik Gedola wrote the formal Nusach of the 18 benedictions that we say. That's why we call it the Tefillah Shmonesre. And originally it was just 18 brachas. And it was Shmuel Akatun who added the 19th, which is, as you said correctly, Lamal Shinim. It's called Birkas. How do we identify this bracha? Birkas Haminim. The, the blessing at the Minim. And you remember what is Min? One of the, one of the explanations of the word Min. Min stands for? Ma'amine Yeshu Hanotsri. Those who believe in Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth or Jesus the Nazarite, uh, or Hanochri. Uh, um, and, and, and therefore, because they represented a threat to the Jews, a bracha was inserted in Shmonesrei. He actually steps forward 
um, and, and suggests this, and Rabban Gamliel formally accepts this, and it became halacha. Uh, it's the only bracha, this is, we learn this in the Gemara and brachos, the only bracha in Shemona Sreya, that if the Shaliyach Tzibor, why, why do they do Chazar Sashatz in these days? Do you remember why? They don't have one of these two hickeys. No Sidur. And no Sidur, so some of the people didn't know the Nusach. They didn't know how to daven, so the Shaliyach Tzibor daven for them. That's where Chazar Sashatz comes from. Yeah. So um, the only the only time that one of the brachas is disqualifying to the point that if if a shliach tzibur makes a mistake, we immediately remove him and replace him with somebody else is birkas aminim. Why? Logically, because if he makes a mistake, maybe he is a min, and he's you know secretly undercover trying to. Uh, what's that? No. No, also Islam's not a Bodhisattva. Birkas Aminim. You got it. Right. Um, so this is Bracha. Now, once the Gemara tells us a story, there was a Shliach Tzibor who was in the middle of Chazar Sashats reviewing the, uh, the repetition of Shmonasre, and he messed up in the, in the Malshinim, and his name was Shmuel Akatar. Right? In his own Bracha, he messed up, and they let it slide. They said, uh, you know, he's the one who wrote the Bracha, so. That already we're not willing to do, and they, they, uh, <coughs> they said he just forgot. He made a mistake. Uh, these are the days of Rabbi Ishmael ben Elisha, the Kohen Gadol, who receives the Torah and the Sefer Bahir from his Rebbe, Rabbi Nechuni ben Akana. Remember, the Sefer Bahir was one of the great Kabbalistic works in these days. He studied Kabbalah. Uh, he's famous, Rabbi Ishmael ben Elisha. Um, he, there's a very famous sugi in Brachos, where he blesses the Kaddish Baruch Hu, and he says, Yiratzon, I think there's a nice Avram Fried song to this, Yiratzon milfanecha, shiyichbushu rachamecha eskascha, let it be your will that you have your quality of compassion that overrides your quality of anger, uh, and he teaches, he teaches there, and uh, it's a very powerful bracha, uh, that a person should not, uh, any bracha is is valuable, a, pers- a bracha, even of a common man, a hediot, shouldn't be light in a person's eyes. Um, we're going to see again Rabbi Shema ben Elisha, keep track of him. I'm, I'm introducing these figures, but we're not done talking about them. He will be the first, let me know, one of his not great claims to fame. I mean, not, not, no, no, no bad reflection on him at all, but one of the notorious uh, elements of his life is his death. He's the first of the Asara Haruge Malchus. He's the first of the ten martyrs. We read about them on, on Yom Kippur, on, on Tisha B'Av. Oh, is he the one that they wrap in the... Uh, right. In the That's right. Because he was, he was famously very beautiful. Yeah. Famously very beautiful. So, so hold off. I'm gonna, we'll talk about that story uh, when, we get, when we get close to the Chorban, the Chorban itself. Um, he also has a very famous namesake, Rabbi, Elisha, Rabbi Shmuel ben Elisha, who's his grandson, who we're going to meet. And uh, how do you know that, Rabbi Shmuel? He's the more famous Rabbi Ishmael ben Elisha of the Rabbi Ishmael Omer Shlosh Midos, right? That we say right before, right after Korbanos and before, right before Mizmor Shir in in davening in the morning. Um, he's Rabbi Akiva's famous uh, Bar Plutza, the the uh, his, his his friend we argued with, and um, yeah, and um, I mean these are some of the greatest figures of all time. I actually, I, I was moved to tears when I davened by the following Tzadik's um, gravesite. It's in a place that's hard to get to. It's in the middle of an Arab village in the northern Galilee today called Arabe. His name is Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa. 
Let me know. Does that ring a bell? Say again. No, he was not one of the ten martyrs. What, do you know anything about Rabbi Chaim Ben Dosi? You will know if, if you don't remember. Some of the stories are very famous. Okay, I'll tell you about Rabbi Chaim Ben Dosi. Uh, and he's not visited enough as he should be today. He is described in the Gemara in Tainis as Melumad Benisim. Akadosh Baruch Hu has certain, uh, let's say, he expresses certain certain favorite favoritism towards certain individuals in the course of history. And he does, he reflects this by having miracles come about through them. So Rabbi Hanina is one of these figures with lots of miracles. I mentioned him recently because who steals some of his miracles and attributes them to somebody else? The early Christians will attribute exactly the miracles that befell Rabbi Hanina and they say, oh no, that was Jesus. No fair. Anyway, uh, he was a student of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Hashem calls Hanina, he calls him Hanina Bini. My son, you want that on your resume? You know, Hashem said, that's like one of those movie posters, you know. Hashem says, my son, Hanina. Uh, Is that also where they get like, Yoshi, my son? Yeah, oh, that's interesting. I don't know. I hope not. Uh, it's not literal. Hashem just means literal, it as a term of affection. I'm saying that's that Maybe, yeah, well, uh, I never, I didn't make that connection. Uh, he's so poor. That a baskol comes down and declares daily to the world, kol haolam kulo, the entire world, nizon, gets its sustenance, gets its food, bishvil chanina bini, because of my son, my righteous servant, chanina. The chanina bini, but you know when it comes to chanina, dailo bekav charuvin me'erv Shabbos le'erv Shabbos. It's enough for him to subsist on a small measure of carob without the sugar. Anybody eat carabins, oh, yummy, like chocolate, right? But that's only when they, when they put lots and lots of sugar. Carob on its own, mm, not so much. A little bit bitter. A little bit bitter. Anyway, he had a small measure. He and his wife and daughter and maybe other family members had a small measure of this carob from one mozi, from one Shabbos to the next, and that's what they subsisted on. And that was even their Shabbos owning. Well, isn't it sort of, wait, wasn't that back then? Was that what? Wasn't he used as a medicine back then? I don't know. But he used it as food. That was his sustenance. Um, who else subsists later on on, on Carib, famously? There you go, Rabbi Shimar Yochai. We'll, we'll, we'll see that too. What's that? I, I mentioned, yeah, I think we talked about Carib, also remembered by Chonia Magel. The, 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 it only produces fruit after, after 70 years. The man was planting the tree. Was, yeah, and you said it wasn't native? And it's not native. Right, it's, it, we, people associate carob trees with Eretz Yisrael, but they came to Eretz Yisrael in the Second Temple. One very strong proof to that is it's never mentioned once in the entire Tanakh. I mentioned that. Anyway, that was his sustenance. That's what he lived on from Shabbos to Shabbos. His wife is a massive tzedekah. It's harder for the women. You know, their lives are much more materially based. So she had nothing to live on, nothing to, nothing to bake in. In fact, Martin Tiny Salsa tells a story that her neighbor used to like to embarrass her. And um, Hashem wanted to protect her dignity. So Hashem made a miracle. She was Melumedis Benissim. Hashem made a miracle and made her chimney look like there was constantly smoke going out, like she was always baking up a storm. Meanwhile, there was nothing in their cabinets. They lived on carob. They didn't have any bread. They didn't have fresh challah. Um, so one day the neighbor decided, I want to see the challah that she's baking. I don't believe this. So she comes, you know the story. Right? She comes knocking at the door and she says, show me the challah. And Hashem makes a miracle, and uh, and Mrs. Rebitzin uh, Bendosa opens the door, and there's massive chal dough everywhere that you look. He's there, and he preserves her dignity. Uh, right. She, yeah, go ahead. But, uh, but 
isn't that a continuation of the story? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of stories there. He makes a return because he didn't want the scar. No, that was later. That was the leg on the table. They, they. Uh, she said it's so hard. The poverty. Can't you dive in for something? And Hashem, he does. You know, when you're of the stature, the, the spiritual pedigree of Rabbi Chaim Mendoza, you dive in for something. Hashem tends to listen more so than the than the average person. And Hashem said, "Sure, I'll give you one of the three legs. It's a symbolic thing of Olam Haba." But then they realize, hey, that's going to come at the expense of what we're going to get in Olam Haba. You realize that when you live it up in this world, that's something you're not going to get in Olam Haba. So they ask that it should be returned, and that also, Hashem, goes against the rules. Usually the rules are once you get something, you can't retract it. No, what do they call that? In, 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 uh, it's it's no return policy kind of a thing, but Hashem takes it back. The, uh, she's rewarded for her righteousness in, Olam ha, in, in the world to come, Lassid Lavo, in the future days. She'll be the one putting the tchelis in the tzitzit for all the tzaddikim. Good prize. I want to be that one too. But she got it. Um, Rabbi Hanina is able to daven for everybody. You know, he's the one that they bring the names of the sick because you want Rabbi Hanina to daven for you. And he knew, it wasn't through prophecy, he knew who would get sick and who wouldn't. Shmuel Akathan has the last bit of prophecy, unusually in history. He's the one who predicts the death of the deaths of the, night, of the ten martyrs. But uh, Rabbi Hanina doesn't have prophecy, but he can still figure out who is going to live and who is going to die because after he davened, um, he could tell if his if his prayer was fluent in his mouth or not, and when it was fluent, he said, "Okay, that's going to that's going to go well for that person." And when he couldn't get it out, couldn't get the words out, not a good sign. Um, his daughter once made a terrible mistake. This is probably the most famous story of Rebbe Mendoza. His daughter was setting up the Shabbos candles, and she and, and then it was too late, and she said and somehow that we couldn't go back, and she said, "Ay vey, what have I done? I put instead of oil, I put vinegar." Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he says, What do you care? Hashem gave flammable properties to oil. He could do the same with vinegar. Anything is possible for a Gadish Baruch. I know. They didn't do it l'chachila. He's just pointing out that a Gadish Baruch is the source of everything. So if, you, if you're on, and then look at Rav Lopian, he has a whole drasha there, and he says, for somebody like Rabbi Hanina, who life itself was a miracle, so that obviously it was Meluma Benisim. Of course, he's 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 he's, he's uh, conversing with miracles. He sees breathing as a miracle. So for such a person, Hashem makes lots of miracles because it's all the same. For most of us cynics and overly rationalist, rationalist, westernized, uh, you know, kind of mindset, so it's hard for us to see the miracles in daily life. So we wouldn't have these miracles. So he said, you know, let Hashem give uh, vinegar, flammable properties, and indeed Hashem does, and the candles light from the vinegar. Uh, not only that Leil Shabbos, but actually through the entire Shabbos till Motzei Shabbos. Uh, contrast Rabbi Chanina Bendosa with Yashka. His miracles are based purely on a selfless kind of avodas Hashem. He's just trying to serve Hashem in the best way he can. Um, Yashka has, yeah, they, they, they attribute certain miracles to Yashka, but every last one is self-serving. It's all to show he's the Messiah, he's the man. He's trying to promote himself. It's like a PR campaign. That's how they're using these miracles. Um, right, Rabbi Hanina lived, we know, through the Chorban Beis Mikdash. He had a Rikos Yamim in a long life. Uh, the Mishnah Sota says when Rabbi Hanina Bendosa dies, Batlu Anshe Maisa. No more men of great substance exist in the world. You know, you said that you went to a cable. I did. Do we know it's a cable? It's a good question. I think it's one in the list that the Rizal identified. If the Rizal did indeed identify it, then we, we hold by it. 
and it's in the place where and the Gemara says he was from Araba, and indeed there's a there's an Arab village that retains that name till today called Araba in the middle of the northern Galilee, and um, they're not always so nice there, but we went. I took my tour guide class there, and uh, it was very powerful. You know, because when I go to the camp of Tzaddik, I'm also thinking of all these stories and his inspiration and wanting to learn from him and live by, live by this kind of way. You don't dive into the Tzaddik, you only dive into the Kedush Baruch Hu, but to go there is very, very powerful. I don't know. You should look up the Mishnah. I'll, I'll translate the words, Batlu Anshe Maisa, men of action. He did. That's what it means. Go Darshan there. It's in Sota and Tesamid Aleph. I'll round out today, we'll talk about um, Rabbi Gamliel himself, the great, uh, the Nasi of the time, Hillel's grandson. Um, his whole household is righteous. Um, but probably of his whole household, probably the most famous member was not his wife and not his children, um, but his servants. The servant's name? Tavi. Tavi Avdo. I had a student many years ago named Tavi. It's great. Um, no, it wasn't Yemenite. Interesting, interesting name choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a very famous figure uh, in, in the Talmud. I'll say a little bit about Tavi. Tavi was an Evid Knani. I mean, he was a descendant of Ham. He was a non-Jewish uh, man. Evid Knani is not quite Jewish. They accept some of the mitzvahs. They have the same obligations as women. And if they ever go free, which is hard to do, they, have, they can't be liberated Consciously, they have to be um, one of the 24 limbs of the body. The master has to destroy. If you, for example, you know, if he if he, if he blinds him, so then the Eved Kanani goes free. And when he goes free, then he becomes a full-fledged Jew. But Tavi wasn't like this. He was a he was a loyal um, servant, but he was a Talmud Chacham who, uh, in fact, his Rebbe, Rabbi Gamaliel, used to call him Abba Tavi as a, as a term of kavod. You're my father, really. Tavi used to sleep. Under his bed, under his master's bed in the sukkah. What's ironic there? No, no, not forget that. No. Under a bed is technically not kosher. You're not sleeping under the schach, so it's not good. But he was an evid, and like a woman, they're not obligated in the sukkah, so it's okay. What was his motivation? He wanted to hear all the Torah that his Rebbe was learning. And he mastered the, his Rebbe's Torah. That's why, that's why he hid there um, in, the, in the sukkah. He is probably, he remains the evid of... Um, Rabbi Gamaliel's son, Rabbi Shimon, and then, this, and then his grandson, Rabbi Gamaliel II. Um, and finally, one of the Rabbi Gamaliels, probably the grandson, decides, he's such a righteous Talmud Chacham Tzadik Olam, I want to free him, but I can't. And he was very frustrated, um, and so he arranges all the Shem Shemaim, all in his best interest. He, since we know, Evid Yotzi B'Shem and he blinds him. And he makes a terrible mistake. He forgets to arrange for. He forgot. He forgets to arrange for. What's our sugin in Makos? Kosher witnesses. So it didn't count. Without kosher witnesses, the, the servant doesn't go free. Uh, Rabbi Gamliel felt that he should be the one serving Tavi, and then he says, "Elam But the acts of his ancestor Knan caused his status. Um, but think about this, you know, the whole notion of a slave in Roman culture all the way down into the American society prior to the Civil War, slaves were not human beings. They were to be beaten and abused. The Jewish notion of a slave, we treat our slaves, and the halacha is like this too. Go look at the first paragraph, learn this in the first paragraph of, of Kiddushin. They elaborate on the laws. If you own one pillow, you give it to your slave. 
and, 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 and typical of the way we treat our slaves. Our idea is to treat, that's a Jewish slave, that's true. That's a Jewish slave. But even to every Kanani, we're relatively kind. And, and, and we, want, we want to shout out, because that's the Jewish way. That's our mission, and again, really rounding out the day. That's perhaps these qualities and many others was what really, really resonated for the, for the world at large. And so naturally, they were, they were knocking down, pounding down the door to convert to be part of Klal Yisrael. Okay, have a wonderful Shabbos.